0: Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Love to see all the conversations happening all around the room. That's wonderful. couple things before we get started. One is, if you are between the ages of a high school senior... Through age 25, today is the day that the Young Adult Fellowship Group meets. So if you are in that age range, we would love to have you be part of that community. That group meets right after church today in the Welcome Center, which is right out here and to the right where the tables are. And you won't be able to miss it because there will be the alluring smell of yummy food We provide lunch for that group, so head on over, have something to eat, and spend some time uh, with that community. The other thing that just kind of got added to the list uh, was from Sheila O'Hearn. She spoke to me while we had a little bit of time here. Many of you know that Sheila was uh, in the hospital this week, in and out of the hospital. Last Sunday, uh, she had an incident in which something happened with her body and she needed to be carried out and taken to the emergency room. And she just wanted to communicate her thanks. Um, Hebrews 13 says this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. And Sheila uh, just talked to me a little bit ago and said that she really sensed that this week, that the Lord was helping her, that your prayers uh, were being answered. I know that I went to see Sheila in the hospital when things first went down, and she thanked me for that, but I told her, and this is totally true, that I went there to see if she was okay, and I left like she had helped me way more than I had helped her. She was sitting in the hospital bed in the emergency room, and the first thing she said was, I completely trust the Lord. He has control of this and he's helping me. And that was way more helpful to me than the help I was able to give her. So anyway, Sheila, we're glad you're here. Okay, we are going to continue with our series in Acts. Believe it or not, this is installment number 21 of our Acts series. It seems to have flown by. Acts is a very unique book. It is, in my opinion, better than just about the the greatest plot-twisting novel you could come up with. It is just so intriguing, so well-written, and it's made all the more powerful and wonderful by the fact that it's true. So we're going to continue today with the account of Paul and Barnabas. This is the first of four of Paul's missionary journeys, and today's uh, text is from Acts 14, and this is actually the wrap-up, the completion of Paul's first missionary journey. And we're going to be in that section of Scripture, sort of, sort of. And I'll tell you what I mean by sort of in a moment, but let's pray first, and then we'll we'll continue with our, group, uh, with our message. Besi- by the way, the, the title of today's message is Defending the Faith. Defending the Faith. So let's pray. Father God, we ask you for miracles this morning, Lord. We come before you and we cast our cares on you because you tell us to do that. And what we are asking for, Lord, this morning is miracles. Lord, I need your help please fill my heart and mind and mouth with the things that you would desire that I would say, even if they're different than I've planned to say. And Lord, I ask also that you would open hearts and ears and minds to hear your word, Lord, and change people this morning. That is a miracle. Change those of us who you have saved. Change those of us who need salvation, Lord. We ask it in the mighty name of Jesus, amen amen all right let's get started and you guys know by now with me that when we get started it involves a map so if we can have a map yes love maps this is a good one too you've seen this one for the past couple weeks you're probably getting pretty familiar with it a couple of interesting things about this map that you might not have noticed before these little yellow dots i'm not sure you can see them Seven little yellow dots, seven cities. Those are the seven cities that are referred to in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So if you have time this week, go and read the beginning of Revelation. This is where we're talking about geographically, those seven cities. Uh, The other interesting thing, and I think Joe mentioned this before, but this big green area up here is Galatia. So when Paul opens his letter to the Galatians by saying, Paul an apostle not from men nor through man but through jesus christ and god the father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of galatia that's what he's referring to he's talking about these churches that he helped establish on this first missionary journey the other thing which you by now know is this blue line is his outgoing trip he and barnabas traveling together And the red line is the return trip. So today, what we're going to be covering are kind of these last three stops on his journey. There's a town there called Iconium. There's Lystra right next door. And over here is Derby. And so we're going to cover those last three stops and then his return journey, which is covered very quickly. I said a little bit ago that we were going to cover Acts chapter 14, sort of. There's a lot of content in Acts 14. And instead of reading it all to you, I'm gonna give you kind of a quick synopsis of what happened. And then instead of teaching straight out of that passage, I'm gonna give you homework assignments. I've done that before. This is a fellowship group week. So the fellowship group discussion questions are sort of geared toward the homework to cover things in Acts 14 that we just don't have time to cover today. And I'm also gonna try to be really Uh, diligent this week to start some conversations on the church Facebook page. So if you haven't haven't engaged with the church Facebook page in the past, this would be a great week to see what's there, engage in some conversation, add some of the wisdom that the Lord has given to you about some of these things that we're just not going to have time to cover today in Acts 14. The reason that is, is instead of teaching straight out of Acts 14, we're going to cover a topic that I have wanted to teach for a long time. And so I'm super excited about what we're covering today. But here's what's happening in Acts 14. So they get to Iconium, and Paul and Barnabas do what they always do on this trip. They find the local Jewish synagogue. And they start there, and they start preaching the, the account of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, to the Jewish population in these cities. And just like it always happens, there are some who believe and some who don't and resist. And what becomes very commonplace in these missionary journeys is that those who resist turn to violence. And so Paul and Barnabas are there for a while and they're preaching and they're having some success. But those who are in resistance threaten violence. And when Paul and Barnabas find out about it they decide to get out of dodge so they leave iconium and they travel to the next town which is up there I promise you can't see it but it's there lystra and in lystra a couple of amazing things happen first of all they meet a man we never get his name but they meet a man who has not been able to walk he has had not no use of his feet since birth and paul sees this man And sees that this man believes, and he speaks to him, and the man is healed. And he gets up and starts walking around for the first time in his life. And someone who would be in this condition for his entire life would be well known in this town. And so when they see that this man who has never been able to walk is all of a sudden walking, the people have a very reasonable response. Now, some of you who know the story and what's going to happen next may be surprised that I say it's a reasonable response, but it is a reasonable response. The way they respond is this. They think that Paul and Barnabas must be gods. They start worshiping them as Zeus and Hermes. Now, why is that reasonable? Because they see something happen that is clearly supernatural that is clearly not come from man. And so they reach the only conclusion that they can within their own the, the perspective that they have, and that is Greek mythology. The only thing they know is that there are these gods associated with Greek mythology, and something supernatural clearly happened right in front of them. And so they come to the conclusion that this must be Zeus and Hermes, and they begin worshiping Paul and Barnabas. Paul, of course, responds with, no, 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 no. Stop worshiping us. We are men just like you. And he points them to the gospel, the creator God, the living God. And he begins preaching the gospel to this group and introducing them to the story of the God who's the actual creator of the world. But trouble is in store because people from Iconium, the town they were just in, and from Antioch of Pisidia, which is in the the town that we talked about last week, follow Paul and Barnabas to Lystra. They're so upset that they follow them to Lystra, and they create trouble, and they stir up trouble, and all of a sudden, this time, instead of being able to get out of town, violence occurs. And this group of people in Lystra who just moments ago were worshiping Paul and Barnabas are now stoning Paul Now think about that. We hear about that a lot in the New Testament, people being stoned, and we kind of pass over and we know it's a bad thing, but they're rocks. I, I don't know if anybody in here has ever been hit by a rock, but it hurts. And they hit them with rocks over and over and over again, until Paul is physically at a condition where they come to the reasonable conclusion that he's dead. They think he's dead. So he must be bruised and battered and beaten and bloody. And they take what they think is a dead body and they drag it out of the city and they throw him on the ground outside the city walls. And then Paul does one of the most epically heroic things ever in scripture. And that is he gets back up because he's not dead and he walks right back into Lystra and starts preaching to the people who just stoned him. That's incredible to me. Then the next day, they go on and they go to Derby and they preach there. And in the area surrounding that, the scriptures say that they make many disciples and they spend time in Derby. Then they return and they go back to Lystra, where he was stoned. They go back to Iconium, where they had all kinds of trouble. They go back to Antioch of Pisidia, where people hated them and chased after them to do them harm. They go back to all of these difficult places before returning to their home base of Antioch, which is the other Antioch. So that is what is going on in Acts 14. And there are about a bazillion things in there that we could actually spend time talking about. But I think that the Lord wants us to go a slightly different direction today and use the events of Acts 14 as a launching point for a different kind of discussion. And that's, that's this. Last week, Joe uh, pointed out the fact that we have been, for 21 installments, telling you to go and tell. That's what Acts is all about, go and tell. But last week, Joe kind of talked about, though, what are we telling them? What, What are the hows and the what's and the who's of going and telling people about Jesus? And this is what Joe said. He said to proclaim the superiority of Jesus. There is no other name greater or higher than the name of Jesus. He said to proclaim the sinlessness of Jesus. Jesus is unique in all of world history in that he's the only person ever to live a life completely free of sin. Not one errant thought, not one errant action. He said to proclaim the mission accomplished. What does that mean? That Jesus came and did exactly what he intended to do, which was live a sinless life and then go to the cross willingly. He was not forced to go there. He chose it. I I think I've said this before, but one of my favorite lyrics from a song is, they did not take his life, he laid it down. That was his choice. Then he told us, Joe told us to proclaim the news. What news? Well, that the king who came as a man and gave his life willingly is not still dead. He's alive. There was a resurrection. He is alive at this moment. Joe said to proclaim forgiveness and freedom. There is forgiveness for every sin you've ever committed, every sin you ever will commit. There is freedom from the, the bonds of sin, Only in one name, and that's Jesus. And to proclaim the necessity of trusting and receiving Christ. These are the things that we talk about when we go and tell. And there are so many ways, there are innumerable ways to start that conversation with people. You can be very intentional about how you begin sharing the gospel. Or, what I think happens more often, is you can kind of be opportunistic, and that is you ask the Lord for opportunities to speak to people who need to know about Jesus, and then when the Lord puts that opportunity right in your path, you take the opportunity and start the conversation. But here's what we're going to talk about today. When you have those conversations, a lot of times the conversation breaks down. And, and, you, and you encounter people who are skeptical, skeptics, who hear all of these things that we're proclaiming, and they're not sure that they buy it. Now, I recognize and I even hope that there are people in this room today who may fall in that category, who are skeptical. And I don't want you to feel, if that's you, I don't want you to feel like I'm pointing a finger at you and saying that there's something wrong with you that you're skeptical because the reality is, if we're honest, being skeptical about this news is kind of a reasonable thing to be. It is hard to hear that someone who lived nearly 2,000 years ago died, rose from the dead, and is still alive today. That's, That's not an easy thing to believe because in our context of our lives we don't know people who do this i mean everyone i know i've ever known who's passed away has stayed passed away you know what i mean we don't have we don't have a a, a sphere of seeing people rise from the dead so it's it's a hard thing so one thing i want to say to those of us who do believe that jesus is risen is that the title of today's message is Defending the Faith, but I want you to be careful that defending the faith and being defensive about our faith are two totally different things. And so when you have these conversations with people, please, I beg you, remember that the people you're speaking with who are skeptical should be spoken to in love and kindness with, with open ears, um, The way I think of it is like this, many of you know that that being a pastor is not my full-time job, I teach music. And one of the interesting things that I have to live with in teaching music is that my class is elective, which means people don't have to be there. Okay, they have to go to math class, they have to go to English class, they have to do this, they have to do that. They don't have to come to music. So I could be the world's greatest music teacher, which I'm not, I could be Beethoven in the classroom But if I don't create an atmosphere where kids want to be part of what I'm doing, they won't be there. And so we can kind of think about this the same way when we're having these conversations. If we approach those conversations in a way that people would like to still converse with us, then we still have a conversation. But if we approach them in a hard way, in a defensive way, we shut the conversation down. So I would encourage you to keep that in mind if you find yourself in this situation. One person, he's going to be mad at me for saying this, but one person who is brilliant at this is Adam Jones. He's a total expert at having difficult conversations uh, with people and, and being able to keep those lines of communication open. So if you're having trouble, go talk to Adam. Sorry, Adam. So what do you talk about when you talk about... When you're talking with skeptical people, a lot of times when, uh, well, let us let me back up. Let me say it this way. When you're talking with people who, who are skeptical, skeptical about these things, you enter a uh, category of conversation called apologetics. Anybody ever hear this word before, apologetics? We're going to be talking about apologetics today. It is, what we're talking about today is far from complete. The world of apologetics is huge. And when I first heard that word, I didn't like it, because it sounded like I was apologizing for what I believe, making excuses for what I believe. I thought, I don't want to call it that. But I realize now that apologetics simply means this. This is the definition for apologetics. It's a reasoned argument, reasoned arguments or writings in justification of something, of something. So, in the context of what we're talking about today, we're talking about Christian apologetics, a reasoned argument in justification of what we believe as Christians. But there can be all kinds of apologetics. There are political apologetics. I suppose you could even have favorite flavor of the day at Meadows apologetics. I mean, if you have a position about something— and you can make a reasoned argument in favor of that position, it falls under the category of apologetics. And if you've been, you may have noticed that several times today already, I've used used the word reasoned or reasonable. That's extremely important. It's extremely important because I think, and I could be wrong about this, but I think that a lot of times when we are speaking to people who don't buy into this Christianity thing, they probably think that we don't have reasonable evidences for believing what we believe, that we generally just believe just because we do. And I've, I've been stuck in that situation before in my life where someone says, well, why are you a Christian? Why do you even think this happened? And I say, I don't know, just because, you know? Um, and I don't, really have, I don't really have a good, I haven't in the past had a good reason or a reasoned argument for justifying what it is that I think about the Bible. And what I love about the Bible is that the Bible itself tells us to consider these things and reason these things out and be sure that what we read in there and believe is true is true. The Bible tells us to do that. Now, apologetics is not sharing the gospel. It's not what I said earlier that Joe taught last week Uh, apologetics is more information. Apologetics apologetics conversations leads to interesting information and evidences, whereas sharing the gospel leads to a response. It leads to worship. It leads to obedience. The conversations with apologetics hopefully will lead back to sharing of the gospel. But it's the gospel that changes people. Sharing the gospel is telling people the good news that Jesus, who paid the penalty for the sins we've committed, is alive. And he is ready to save any and all who turn away from sin or false gods or no gods and recognize that they are in need of a Savior and trust wholly in Jesus as that Savior. That's the gospel. When you share that with someone and they have difficulty with it, you may find yourself in a different type of conversation, one that falls under the headings of apologetics. But the conversations along those lines are always intended to lead back to the sharing of the gospel. Does that make sense? Okay. When you talk to skeptics, they'll often question the things in the Bible that are extraordinary. They'll say things like, and again, please remember, I'm not pointing a finger. These, These are hard things to believe. They'll say things like, there couldn't have been a worldwide flood. I don't buy it that there was a Noah's flood. Well, what about creation? You're telling me that there's a God who created everything that there is in six days. What about the parting of the Red Sea? That's ridiculous. You can't tell me that an entire body of water just parted and these people crossed on dry land. There are These extraordinary moments. But when we read through Acts and you see what the apostles are going out and preaching, for the most part, they don't touch those things. They don't touch the parting of the Red Sea and the creation and the uh, Noah's flood. They may mention it here and there, but what they're going out and preaching is the resurrection, which... Is also an extraordinary thing that's an extraordinary astonishing thing but that is the thing that they focus on and the bible itself calls that into question it tells us that we should question our faith because of the resurrection here's what i mean in first corinthians chapter 15 paul is writing can we have the map back up a minute is that too hard to ask Okay, so Corinth is over here. This is Greece. All the action we're talking about today is here. But on a later missionary journey, uh, Paul is going to be over here in Corinth. Eventually, he's going to go to Italy, which is like over here in Kids Cove somewhere. But he goes to Corinth, and then at a later time, he writes the letters to the Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians. And in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, uh, he says this. I'm going to read verses 3 and 4 verses 13 and 14, and verse 19. So, I'm breaking it up a little bit, but here's what it is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then later he says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Our faith in Jesus Christ depends on one thing, and that's whether or not he is truly alive right now. If he's not, then he's not who he said he was. He's not who he says he is. And everything that we're doing may be morally good. We might be living a good life. We may may be being kind to people and generally trying to live well, but it doesn't mean anything but if he is alive it means everything it has massive implications for what we do and what we think and what we say on a daily basis for those of us who already believe and for those who don't if you are here today and you do not trust in jesus as a savior then the biggest question you can ask yourself is is jesus risen from the dead if he is This has great implications for your life. So, did he rise? This is what we're going to talk about today. I would say that pretty close to 100% of the people in this room would say, yes, he did. I'm actually hoping there are some in here who who don't. And if you are not sure, I would would ask you to talk to me afterwards. I, I would love to have a conversation with you about this. If you're in that first group who does believe, then everything we're going to talk about from now until the rest uh, of this time is going to be in the category of equipping you to have these conversations with people when you go out and, and, and tell people about Jesus. If you're in the second half, you're not so sure, you're skeptical about these things, then I would like you to listen and then let's have a conversation. So here's where we're going from here to the end. Five reasons to believe Jesus rose from the dead. Five reasons. Now, I want to give credit where credit's due. These graphics, which look not as good when they're made really big, are from a, uh, a guy named Adam Ford. He has a, a website online, and I can't endorse everything he says on there, but he has some cool things that I borrowed for today. So, um, five reasons, five evidences, five reasons, Things that you can look at and come to a reasonable conclusion that Jesus is alive right now. And the first one is the empty tomb. The empty tomb. It says this in Mark 16 And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. The time of Jesus' ministry in the region around Jerusalem, Judea, was a time of extreme political upheaval, which pretty much means it's just like it is today, right? The Roman Empire was in control of most of the known world. They had power in this region. But there was another group, the Jewish leadership, which was a religious leadership. Remember at this time, there was no king of Israel. There was no monarchy. So it was a religious leadership. These two governments, for lack of a better term, were vying with one another for power. The Jews were hungry for power. They wanted to regain their independence, their autonomy as their own nation. And they were looking for the chance to wrest this power away from Rome. And Rome was doing everything it could to hold on to it with as little effort as possible. And you take Jesus and you insert him into this climate and he was disliked by everyone. The Romans hated him. The Jewish leadership hated him because he threatened their power in every way. And the only thing they wanted to do was squash this Jesus movement. And they thought that they did. What better way to stop a movement than to kill its leader. So, there was a conspiracy. They brought up charges that were completely false, and they had him crucified. And now, a few days later, here are his followers claiming that he has risen from the dead. Now, this is important evidence because a body is a piece of physical evidence, right? If you've ever watched any crime show ever in your life, you know that you can accuse someone of murder, but if there's no body, there was no crime. So the presence of a body is measurable evidence of whether or not something happened or didn't happen. And so the people who were in power would have loved, would have loved to squash all of this By just producing Jesus' body and saying, here it is. We killed him, and here's evidence that he's still dead. But they were unable to do that. They were unable to do that because the body was nowhere to be found, and they had to resort to lying about it. In fact, if you think about it, Jesus' followers would have been crazy to claim that he rose from the dead if he didn't actually, because if he didn't rise from the dead, that meant that the body would have to be somewhere, right? And if they claimed this, and then the body was found, it would be massively dangerous for them. So, the tomb is empty. They would have loved to produce a body, but it wasn't there. Number two, second reason to believe Jesus rose from the dead He appeared to many eyewitnesses, the post-mortem appearances, all right? So, uh, do you remember 1 Corinthians 15? I just read from that a little bit ago. I skipped a few verses. Well, here's what it says in verses 5 through 8. It says that he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, there are a couple important things in here. First of all, this is something that Paul writes that is corroborated other places in Scripture. These things that he mentions are accounted for by other writers. That's important. It's also important that this letter is almost universally agreed upon by scholars who know these kind of things to have been written somewhere around 50 a.d so about 15 years after jesus death and resurrection or so i'm not exactly sure what the numbers are but it's not long after that's important because when you consider those two things all of a sudden this phrase becomes really really important, most of whom are still alive. Paul says he appeared to over 500 brothers, most of whom are still alive. Why would he say that? Why would he say that? He's basically saying this, these people that I'm claiming saw Jesus, they're still around. They're down the street. If you don't believe me, go ask them. Go ask them. You can go and talk to these people and they will tell you the same thing that I told you because they saw him. They ate with him. They touched him. They heard him speak. And they're not gonna tell you any story that's any different than what I'm telling you because they saw him. And if you see a person who you know died and is now alive, that changes you. They're going to report it. Now, some people will say, wait, that's not, that's not a valid piece of evidence because you're using the Bible to prove the Bible. But here's why that works. When Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, he didn't know he was writing the Bible. He was writing a letter to his friends. Uh, if you've had academic experiences like I've had where you have to do research, you know that the Holy Grail of research is something called a primary source. A primary source is an immediate, first-hand account of a topic from people who had a direct connection with it. So the letter to 1 Corinthians is not the Bible proving the Bible. The letter to to the Corinthians is a primary source written by Paul, which has become a part of the Bible. And not only that, but within it, he's referring to you again to people who saw Jesus. So he's referring you back to a primary, primary, primary source. So this is good, strong evidence. Speaking of Paul, reason to believe Jesus rose from the dead, number three, is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Saul and Paul are the same person. He... We're not gonna go into this in great detail because Joe taught on this a few weeks ago, but it's the reason of the five we have today that connects most closely to Acts 14 because remember Paul was uh, stoned by the people in Lystra and then he gets up and he walks back into the town. Paul was a man who had everything. He had power, he had status, he had education, he had dual citizenship which is massively important at this time. He was, he was a Jewish citizen, but he was born in a Roman city, so he had Roman citizenship. He had a bright future. He had plans. He was well regarded. He spent time arresting, persecuting, and overseeing the deaths of people who believed that Jesus was risen from the dead. This was what he was doing a few chapters ago in Acts. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, he gave it all up. When he turned completely after seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus, that decision to follow Jesus meant he was giving all of that up. He was giving it all up. And what did he turn to? He decided to follow a life in which he walked hundreds of miles to tell people that a dead man was now alive. He had people think that he was crazy, I'm sure. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked at one point. That's coming up later. He was imprisoned for long periods of time. He was starved. And eventually, he was martyred. Why would a person do that? Well, there are two explanations. He either completely lost his mind, but his writings throughout the New Testament would prove otherwise, I would suggest. Or, it was true that on the road to go persecute Christians for believing in Jesus, he met the risen Christ. He saw Him. He spoke with Him. And that changed the whole direction of his life. Number four, reason to believe Jesus rose from the dead, the boldness of the disciples. I love this one. In the Gospels, if you read through the uh, first four books of the New Testament, often referred to as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will see that the disciples, the 12 disciples that Jesus called, are weak, confused, disbelieving, power-grabbing, kind of annoying, self-absorbed group of people. They make every mistake there is to make. They literally ran away when Jesus was arrested in the garden. They took off running. They denied, Peter denied even knowing Jesus. This was a group that had all kinds of problems. And yet later, Every single one of them, except for Judas, who of course was the betrayer, and John, who was uh, sent to the Isle of Patmos, all the rest of them were martyred. They died horrible deaths. And I'll spare you the details of how they died because it was not pretty. The one thing I will tell you is that this picture up here, the red portion of that picture... Do you know who that is and what's happening there? That's Peter. He's being crucified upside down. Why did that happen? He was sentenced to crucifixion for preaching the gospel, and Peter requested that he not be crucified. Not because he wanted to have his life spared, but because he felt that he was not worthy to die the same way that his Lord Jesus died. And so they said, okay, fine, we'll crucify you upside down. And so he died this death preaching the gospel. Why would people do that? What happened to these men that their lives changed so radically? And think about it. If it's not true that Jesus is alive, then that means that they spent what was the remaining part of their lives going around the known world telling people that Jesus was alive and they knew that they were making it up. If he's not alive and they didn't see him, then they were preaching a gospel that they were making up. Why would all of them go to these horrible ends if they were telling a story they knew they had conceived in their own minds? The other possibility is that they actually saw Jesus alive. And they proclaimed the gospel all the way to their unimaginable deaths. And last reason that we're going to cover today to believe Jesus rose from the dead is the explosive spread of Christianity. Do you remember in Acts 5 a teacher, well respected teacher by the name of Gamaliel? Gamaliel was a character that we talked about a while ago. And he was the one that when the apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel, he recommended to the council that these men be released. Let's not make a big deal out of this. Let them go. And his reason for that was based on prior experience. He cited, there have been other uprisings. There was this guy named Theudas, and there was this other guy named Judas the Galilean. And they created a revolt of sorts, and they had lots of followers. But you know what? They died too. And their followers and all of this stuff, all of this trouble, went away. If Jesus is dead, says Gamaliel, this will all go away. His followers will will dissipate. This will not be a problem. But the exact opposite actually happened. In spite of tons and tons of obstacles, in a time when there was no Twitter and no Facebook and no Instagram and no news media of any sort, including newspapers, the story of Jesus' resurrection from the dead spread like crazy. Now, how many of you have ever had one of these in your hand, and you're doing this past some sort of, like on some sort of social media platform, and you see something that is a ridiculous claim? Someone says something and you think, that's not true. But you notice that the person who writes it is someone you don't know. You've never seen this person. They have no part of your life. They have no effect on your life. You see it, what do you do? Keep scrolling, right? But what if you come across that same ridiculous claim and you're looking at it and you're like, oh, that's not true. Oh wait, that was posted by my brother. That was posted by my best friend. That was posted by my parents. That was posted by my child. All of a sudden, this craziness impacts you. And this is what was happening. People saw the risen Jesus, and they were making claims that other people could not imagine were true. But they were people that they knew. And so they were engaging in this conversation, and the conversations were convincing, and they were convincing Because people actually saw Jesus. If you see someone who was dead and is alive, you sit down and have dinner with him, you're going to be pretty convincing when you go tell other people about it. And so the church exploded. So here we are. Five reasons. Equipment for believers, food for thought, for skeptics. What do we do with it now, I think at the very least we can look at these five reasons and agree with Paul that everything rests on the reality of the re- resurrection. If Jesus did not rise, then our faith is in vain and, it's, and we are most to be pitied. Let's go back and look at Acts 14 briefly. In verse 19 it says this, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Paul was a grown man. I'm a grown man. I think that if you did not stone me, but you dragged me anywhere, I would probably have to lay on my couch for a couple of days and not get up. They stoned Paul till they thought he was dead and then dragged him along the ground and threw him on the ground. They came to the reasonable conclusion that he was dead. And then he gets up and he goes back in. Not just once. It goes on to say this. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Imagine Paul's enemies when he waltzed back into Lystra, when he waltzed back into Iconium. Imagine Paul's friends when he came back to those places. It says that he strengthened the souls of the disciples. Can you imagine how encouraging that example would be how encouraging the things that paul had to say to people would be when here is a man who was stoned to practically death and he was still preaching the gospel i can't imagine it what what a testimony why would he do that well i would suggest that he did it because the empty the tomb was empty that Jesus appeared to many, including Paul, that the disciples were changed people, and that the church was growing like crazy, despite what Paul was trying to do originally to stop it. He was so convinced that he was willing to suffer this life, and then he did it three more times, three more missionary journeys, and lots of hardship. So, what do we do with that? Well, first of all, if again, if you're here this morning and you're not sure about all of this, you're like, ah, I don't know. Please, I would love to have this conversation with you here or email me. We'll go have coffee. Let's talk. I would love it. But if you're here and you already believe this, it still requires a response. You've already responded and put your trust in Jesus and been saved. But the resurrection is not for just a moment in time. It's ongoing. Jesus is alive still. And so it requires a response from us all the time. I'm going to quote one other person here today without his permission, but I don't think he'll mind. Bob Reiter was telling me me and a few other people last week about a speaker that he heard recently. And the speaker said, and I might... I might massacre this, but it'll be the right idea anyway. Bob said that this speaker said, you may not be able to see yourself doing some sort of radical thing like what Paul did. You may not be able to see yourself moving your family to the Middle East to preach the risen Christ to people who need the Lord. You may not be able to see yourself going on Nathan's Uganda trip. You may not be able to see yourself fill in the blank. But here's what the Lord is asking you to do. Go as far as you can see. A couple of weeks ago, I preached a message and it, actually I wasn't sure if I preached. Maybe someone else preached and I just did the closing. But we prayed that people, that the Lord would help people see what we, the Lord is calling you to. What, Lord, are you calling me to do? Let's seek the Lord to see what He's calling me to do. And what I think often happens when you seek the Lord in that way is he opens your eyes and realize and you realize that what he's calling you to is right in front of you it's right in front of you you got people around you all the time like Nathan was saying you can be a missionary in your own neighborhood you can be a missionary in your own workplace you can be a missionary in your own home so my call to you today believers hopefully you are more equipped this morning to have these conversations as you go and tell, but I would encourage you now to go as far as you can see. Go to the mission field where the Lord is calling you to that's probably right in front of you. Amen. Let's pray. Let's have the band come up, and we're going to worship the Lord some more before we go. You guys can all stand with me, please, as we pray. Father God, we are thankful for your kindness to us. We are thankful for the word that you have given us. We are thankful that you have revealed yourself in the person and work of Jesus Christ and in your word that you have so graciously given us. Father, we're thankful for the life of Paul. We're thankful for the life of the disciples. We are thankful for the lives of the writers who wrote these accounts that we might see the truth that you have called us to. Lord, we give you thanks for it and we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would help us to be so, so convinced of it. So convinced of it, Lord, that we would remember daily and have on our lips daily the fact that Jesus is risen and is living right now. It's a living God. Lord, give us opportunities to share that good news with others. Give us courage to take advantage of those opportunities, Lord. Help us to see what you're calling us to. And we ask this in the mighty name, the capable name of Jesus, the risen Jesus. Amen.